So, how much of the Olympics have you been watching? A lot. I I get burned out quicker than my wife. Um, she does not get burned out of it at all. <laughs> but so we've watched just about everything we can at night. Are you guys watch? Oh, you guys are watching the replays at night. Um. Yeah. I mean, she'll, she'll watch them during the day, and I'll follow it online. Um. So like we knew about like um. What uh, Suni Lee? Like I knew about that before her, she did because she wasn't able to watch it, but I uh, saw the headline on ESPN. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough when they're overseas, and uh, like I've been trying to follow the USA basketball team, and they're they play at such weird hours. On top of it's like trying to find the sports to watch live is such a mess. Oh, it really is. It's super hard. So it's crazy. It should be the easiest thing in the world, and it's like you got to go to either Peacock or this NBC Sports app or whatever. Like, there's no you can't just turn. Like, I couldn't believe when I woke up and Team USA basketball was playing, and I couldn't. I turned on the t like my cable. It wasn't on any channels. I was like, what the heck? Yeah. How's that even possible? Yeah. Do you think they're going to win gold? Like, they played a lot better after, what, dropping the first game to France? Isn't that who they France, lost to yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they're the favorites to win gold, yes. I think that it's... <sighs> International basketball is much more team-related than the NBA is. It's much more... They don't let... The reason why the NBA is, or these players are all superstars in the NBA, a part of it is they can play isolation basketball and they're going to get either the, the basket, they're either going to score, or they're going to get the foul called and get free throws. They do not call the ticky-tack fouls in international basketball that they do in the NBA. So a lot of these players are struggling to play ISO while you see France and all these other teams passing the ball around, moving the ball, finding the mm-hmm. open look. And the three-point line is so close in international ball these guys, everybody on the court can hit a three point. Like it's not a, it's not a, a that big of a difference. Yeah. And so, well, yeah, I, mean, I think like the interest in talent level overseas in basketball and in baseball, like, has increased dramatically since yeah. thirty years ago when we first had the dream team. Yeah. So the, that that talent floor is rising in the Olympics, I think too. Y- yes, it, it's it's. They're not, yeah, they can't, Team USA can't win on town alone anymore. They actually have to run plays and play as a team and get some chemistry. Uh, but we've looked a lot better recently. I expect us to st- still win gold. It would be a big disappointment if we didn't. But I'm really, I really want uh, Luca to play Team USA, man. He's been lighting it up in the Olympics and he's probably one of the most exciting players in the world right now. So that'll be a cool matchup if we get to see that. But I think that, uh, I think that we can't play them for a while. Yeah. We would need some we would need some dominoes to fall for that to happen. But on other topics of the Olympics, I know me and you got into a little Twitter tiff uh, yesterday or the day before about always uh, assuming the worst. <laughs> can't, can't even compliment somebody without I, without I, Yes, so being, I being the police. I have, on Twitter. I have a quick quick trigger on Twitter because I run into idiots all day. <laughs> but once I once I was able to center myself i realized who i was talking to and uh yeah i i definitely i'll say i was in the wrong but i think that uh because literally all i did was read all the crappy tweets about simone biles for an hour that day uh and people don't understand people who've never been athletes (laughs) are trying to tell her how to live her life which is interesting but yeah i think uh i think that it's Definitely an overblown issue, but it, it was just like a weird, a weird thing to see so much backlash to literally like an Olympic legend. She's a, she's one of the best Olympians the world has ever seen. Like she yeah. could, she could not compete ever again and be the goat. So, well, and then that's what, so, so in kind of explain like my, my um, frame of mind when I wrote the tweet was, you know, like we talked about last week, like I followed Florida Gators football for, for a long time. And I've watched a ton of quarterbacks step in who are highly rated, like really good athletes. And because Florida fans are unreasonable and unruly, like they have a bad game or two as freshmen or sophomores and their confidence is like gone, right? Shot, yeah. So then you have, you know, uh, Suni's her name, right? Her first name, Suni? Uh, yeah, I believe yeah. so. So you have Suni who is 18 years old 
Sunissa goes by Suni, I, I believe. Yeah, I think she goes by Suni. I know she has a long professional name, but you know, she's 18 years old and then not technically filling in because she was already in the finals, but like right. basically the next person up to replace, like you said, if not like the greatest gymnast of all time, definitely the best athlete. Like her, her yes. career is not over. So you kind of wait and see how this falls out, but like easily the greatest athlete in gymnastics history, like completely changed the game. Yes. And now you've got this 18 year old who's like, all right, here I am. And then she wins gold. So to yeah. me, that's what I was awesome. getting at like, with like the mental toughness aspect of like that situation. She could have hid in Simone Biles' shadow and now she couldn't, right? Yeah, yeah. So no, anyway, it's a really, but, it's but, a really but, great point. Like people were like, like I'll say like, um, I, I listened to this thing by a, a guy I really like in Virginia politics named Nick Freitas. And his whole thing was like, listen, she's competed on the world stage for about seven or eight years now, won gold with kidney stones, broken toes, like she's tough yeah. and she can drop out for whatever her reasons are. And he's like, I get it. I'm disappointed. I wanted the gold. I wanted to like dominate, like, but it's not on her. And he, he went mm -hmm. on to say like his frustration was more like the media is like, oh, it's heroic when like Sunni should have been more like, oh, this is heroic also because right. she, she yeah. a lot as well. Yeah, I think that without simone dropping out like we never would have seen this awesome suny lee story and like watching her dad react to her winning the gold was a really cool thing to watch yeah. So. uh but yeah i think uh yeah it's just talking heads man and it's just like again i twitter's not real life and i don't fall necessarily fall into that trap a lot of believing what things ha what things are trending on twitter actually matter Mm -hmm. But that I think I I had just been reading so many tweets about how you know mentally weak Simone Biles was when I saw your tweet. I just I didn't I just saw flash of white. You know had the, the Twitter finger <laughs> no, had the Twitter finger had the Twitter fingers ready. Uh, but I, I yeah mean, I, I I think obviously in a vacuum uh, saying that Suni Lee was mentally tough is not egregious no, at all no. like it's, and it's not, it, no not, not, I, like, absolutely uh, not i just think i just thought in the context of simone biles uh getting a lot of vitriol online it was yeah it was uh a little problematic but yeah again this is why we have a podcast together because <laughs> i don't i don't need to uh read into your tweets and i shouldn't but me, uh, uh so i almost tagged you on, on a retweet i had but uh, this dude put hey the olympics are great but they'd be more interesting if you had just like average people competing next to the olympic oh, oh yeah i i saw that I've, I've heard that before and like i definitely that's uh rich eisen from the nfl network he'll run the 40 every year in a suit and tie and stuff and it's interesting to see him do it because he's just he's like in his 50s but he's like a normal dude yeah. uh also in a suit and tie which is ridiculous but like watching him run it and then you realize like these 300 pound offensive linemen are running like four eight forties, which doesn't sound impressive, but like oh, it's cool. ridiculously impressive. It's insanely impressive. So yeah, I think, I think that's pretty funny. I think, I think, I think after like directly after the Olympics, they should do the regular person Olympics <laughs> and like you, you get to do all the main events and you get to see exactly how tough they are. So what, what I'll, I'll say this, what percentage of Americans do you think in the uneven bars, you know, that's the, the women's gymnastics, yeah, yeah, yeah. High bar, low bar. which percentage do you think can get for the high bar to the low bar? without touching the ground what like one percent like it's not, that's a that's <laughs> not, not even, a lot not of people man nothing just like get there <laughs> yeah yeah like one percent and one percent might be too high one percent is like 300 or 3.5 million americans that's a lot of people so it's probably even less than one percent yeah uh, yeah no that's I, that stuff's I, I, crazy man <laughs> yeah 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 it, it's probably under one percent but like i've I've gone to like, they have like these trampoline things for kids and stuff. And like one of them had some like light gymnastic stuff at the trampoline place. And I was just messing around on them. And granted, I'm super out of shape, but like, I just do not understand the amount of athleticism it takes to like, not only like get up on those bars, but like to spin around and know where you're at and to grab the other one at the right time. And like, yeah. it's just insanity. Yeah. The only gymnastics move I've ever tried to do um was the iron cross and you know like that's the one with the in the men's event they have the rings and they just hold themselves like in a cross position right i was so far away from being able to successfully do it like i work out regularly like yeah obviously nobody can like see you like i've I worked <laughs> out and have worked out for years and like was so far away from successfully doing that i don't even know what muscles i would need to work out more 
to be able right. to pull it off. <laughs> yeah. It, and they just get there and hold it and just chill. I yeah. don't get it. It's it's insane. But as far as medal counts go, we're tied with China at 46 apiece. We have the However, uh, we're in third place with only 16 gold medals. Uh, Japan has 17, and China is currently leading with 21. And some would say China, over the last, what, 21-ish years, has uh, really stepped up their game in uh, the Olympics and become a real threat to the United States with uh, supplanting us as the number one country in the world for Olympic athletes, Uh, which segues nicely into our main topic tonight of the rising storm that is China and their soft power and influence throughout the world. Uh, not just militarily they're they are well on their way to a cultural victory as uh, my gaming nerds would know from, from the game civilization, but we are the one V one deep state podcast. As always, I am Jake at the rake, but the a is a four on Twitter. I am joined by Thomas at Thomas black underscore 86 on Twitter. Uh, this is episode number five. So, we are well on our way to double digits. And luckily, before the show, we were deciding whether we were going to quit this thing because I kept winning every week. But Thomas gracefully gracefully decided that uh, he would keep trying. One of, the, one of these days, he'll win one of these arguments. And uh, we're going we're gonna to press on, hopefully, to uh, indefinitely. But uh, how you been, Thomas? Been good. Busy, but good. Like I said, watching the Olympics, watching uh, China creeping up and, and, you know, obviously surpassing us in the gold medal count neck and neck at the, the overall, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I, I haven't looked at what, up. I haven't looked at what, uh, what events are left, but are we, are we projected to outpace them or are they going to hold steady? Do you know? I don't know. I mean, I know that, um, obviously like the, you know, medals haven't been given for basketball, but that's just one medal and then track and field just started. Right. Um, yeah, I think we probably do a lot in track and field. Yeah. So I think that the front half of the week is more like geared towards them. Um, with like, uh, I mean, across what it is like gymnastics and then some of the martial arts and uh, like um, sports like that. Um, and then, yeah, the last half of the week is I know track and field and, and kind of finishing up like the tennis and golf and other sports. Where I don't know if they're heavily represented there or not. Probably not. They they're generally most for the uh, individual stuff as opposed to the team stuff. Uh, outside of like gymnastics and like swimming, I think. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so both of us have been in the military, which if you've been following along, shouldn't be a surprise. Both of us have worked in and out of the intelligence community throughout our careers. Uh, China is always at the top of the list of global threats to U.S. power. Uh, I think that has been the case for a long time now. But what's been interesting over the last, say, 20 years is that their cultural influence, them opening up to basically U.S. capitalism, where we thought that was going to impart our values on that country, has kind of done the opposite, which I think is very interesting. Kind of gave us a uh, deleterious effect. Mm-hmm. Well, I think some of that, though, you know, and I'm not uh, to take this for what it is. I think uh, President Trump had some very good points on the on the trade issue with China, particularly with regards to intellectual property and there being less um, accountability on what the entire business community, most Americans, I think, know, like is happening with with regards to theft of intellectual property. So when you basically open up your economy. Um, so you can, you can, you know, buy certain things, but in the process of buying those things, you start to steal some of the patent technology, um, that, that just had to be, uh, at some point has to be addressed fully because that's not yeah, th- the actual agreement that president Clinton signed in the nineties. I think one of the best things, one of the only positives of, of Trump's, uh, rhetoric and, and legacy as, as president was his was his tough stance with China, and everybody's given lip service to like sounding tough on China, but he was the one that like actually went and implemented things uh, to kind of punish them. I I don't think 
I don't think what he what necessarily happened was optimal, uh, but at least he was was putting his money where his mouth was. He, you know, I don't the tariffs aren't necessarily the best tariffs, but it's something. It's better than nothing. Yeah. Well, I think I think what, what should have been done differently, um, and I'm saying this from the cheap seats because hopefully he had more intel and read it and acted on it, but. Um, I think there was a lot of wisdom in, in, you know, the Democrats when they were saying, like, you don't go, if we're going to start a trade war, you don't go to any war by yourself without allies. So instead of trying to target the European trade bloc and uh, NAFTA at the same time and and, and China, um, but again, like, I think there's there's validity in some of the things he was saying. I think you say, what's our biggest concern? And if China's our biggest concern, rally support around that cause with with like-minded countries. Um, yeah, and I think one thing he could have on trade and especially as it comes to trying to combat um, the Chinese influence across the world and kind of where they want to be over the next three, four five decades um, is I don't think you tear up the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I mean, even if it had problems, um, it was the right thing to do that President Obama was trying to do, which is get trade partnerships with the developing Asian nations, because somebody is going yeah. to help um, shape their their economics and it's either going to be us or china it's and so that, that, yeah right. that, that it's so hard to, yeah, yeah yeah for sure it, it's so hard to get off the chinese teat with like manufacturing and stuff but having that trans-pacific partnership which i agree not perfect but you can't let perfect be the enemy of good like moving more manufacturing to vietnam moving it to taiwan moving it to other asian countries uh, and getting getting out of China as best we can was absolutely the right call. And I, I definitely think Trump was right about a lot of stuff, right? Like his, his, he didn't have the, closer to the microphone. Trump, Trump was right on a lot of stuff regarding trade. Uh, <laughs> we've been losing out on NAFTA. We've been losing out with China, uh, the NATO countries aren't paying their fair share. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't think of the fourth one that I had, but the th- problem with that is you don't go in and burn it to the ground. You go in and you be diplomatic, which he can't do. He couldn't do yeah. NATO. We pay more into NATO than the other NATO countries, but we get a lot of military power out of being in NATO and utilizing and leveraging that relationship that you can't put a dollar value on. So while every country might not be giving the 2% that they should, there are more diplomatic ways of going about doing it without burning it to the ground and losing all that flexibility we have or <clears throat> or making NATO, you know, not hostile per se outwardly, but like less likely to work with us on things that benefit everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where, I mean, so, so a couple of things, and obviously this isn't the, the sir on President Trump, but. I mean, the, the, if you're going to look at the rise of the Chinese influence across the world, you, you have to certainly consider trade. And what would have been more helpful is if he had have had the same principled stance on trade, um, prioritize China, because I think that's the greatest um, economic threat to our prosperity moving forward, and rallied support there. Um, I think there is some value in obviously bringing tax not a tax rate, but bringing taxes down here so we can also be competitive with manufacturing jobs, do the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, and have it all geared with, okay, here's how we're going to curb Chinese influence in trade. Right. Um, and don't have the entirety of your presidency be um, commented on by what you tweeted or the most outrageous things you say, because then when you have yeah. a valid argument politically, you make it impossible for anybody to work with you because it's just suicide for the election day. And right. from the American public standpoint, you don't want them shifting through what's white noise and what's valid. And I think that's where his rhetoric and his personality um, crippled a lot of what he could have done. That, that like you said, I mean, you're, you're a Democrat, do not agree with 90% of his policies, if not more, but there could have been ways to get people like you if, if his personality was different, or at least if his communication style was different, especially on important things like China and trade. Yeah, and I think that's where 
he's the double-edged sword, right? Like he actually stood up to China and like put his money where his mouth is, but he was also wielding that sword indiscriminately against some of our allies, some of our oldest allies. And again, are some of our allies getting the better of us? Uh, maybe monetarily on paper with transactions, almost certainly. Right. But that's exactly why that's exactly how we've built so much soft power over the last a hundred years. We are a wealthy nation and we spend that money to get that soft power. If, if everybody's paying 2% into NATO, what is, what is, what is, uh, Turkey or, you know, Norway, what do they care about helping the U S outside of their NATO responsibilities? If we're just going to be jerks to them and, and, you know, it's not even like the policy, even if the policy doesn't change, Trump bashing our allies in the media is not good for anything. All it does is diminish, all it does is diminish our power. And like, it was especially like, this is such a pivotal point. There's so many points on this topic that I want to go over. And, you know, we only have an hour, but like China is rapidly expanding their, uh, Huawei is a big telecom for China. They're expanding their 5G network all throughout Asia, all throughout Europe. And Trump is out there bashing our allies. It's like, well, why are they going to use U.S. company when China's offering them all this equipment for free to build their network for free? But of course, that the famous saying, if if the if the service is free, you're the product, right? China's going to harvest all that data. And like that's and I know we had this whole Snowden leak and NSA's monitoring everybody, whatever. The 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 U.S. is not going to monitor the data like China is going to monitor the data. Uh, like it's just they're they're both monitoring the data. I'm sure, but having China do it is is way more of a problem than the U.S. or not even U.S. Like just having a local European telecom versus China who might not be able to com- uh, combat you know Chinese money and influence. But if we stop China from coming into Europe, it would foster you know, more localization of that stuff. But it's, I, it blew my mind when I was seeing these deals Huawei was having with like Germany and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I, I couldn't imagine allowing a Chinese telecom to build my 5G and fiber infrastructure in my country. If I'm not like, it's different when you're Laos or Cambodia and you're a poor country and China's offering to do this all for free. It's like, you kind of have to, if you want to modernize, right? There's no world where Germany, France, the UK, needs chinese telecom infrastructure like it's just not yeah not good and and like once once that gets built and they start getting reliance on it it's over there's no going back 100 well and that's where you know and and, and like take Huawei for instance and, and take it's just being pervasive throughout um most of the world or getting to be pervasive, pervasive throughout most of the world you know what i think if it was going to come to a military conflict um, the U.S. still, and for years, will have the upper hand. Um, and I don't think that's China's plan. But if it does, there is some benefit in being a dictatorship when it, when it comes to war. Yes, so of course. So if you've got the entire, or almost the entire, um, civilian population of democratic countries that you're at war with, if you've got their personal identifiable information, well, guess what? When all of their bank accounts go to zero, or when you start controlling the grid, or when you can just really wreck their lives, even if militarily um, you know that you can't win, you're going to take away the will of the people who vote on the leaders who make war decisions. It doesn't. It doesn't even have to be. It doesn't even have to be hacking our infrastructure, man. If they know, if they have access to my phone and they know they have all that advertising data or whatever, whatever Facebook and Google are pulling off my browsing mm-hmm. habits and purchasing habits that's that's makes misinformation propaganda campaign so much easier yeah it's well, so easy have... they just serve yeah. you all kinds of like pro-china stuff without even you knowing and you don't even you know you don't even realize i mean not uh, somebody like you or i who have dealt with this and professionally yeah. uh are not as susceptible but like we saw with the 2016 election misinformation misinformation runs rampant it's only going to get worse. And if you give China a Rolodex of every person's likes and dislikes, it's that much easier to basically control what they what they think. Sure. Well, and I think that's where, like, you know, in 2016, it was, oh, you know, the Russians interfered with the election and, and this, that, and the other. Well, yes, but how are you talking about? Because the Russians mm-hmm. don't care for Republican or Democrats in the office. Like right. Our general policy towards Russia or China 
is about the same, no matter who's in the office, for the right. most part, at least from a, a foreign policy military standpoint, they want chaos. Like, right. that's what they want. And the more they can understand the population of the U.S., the more easy it is for them to cause dissent, you know, in, in, in the U.S. Um, as a whole. So that's their concern, is they just want to say, look, democracy fails, individual liberty fails, you need some kind of a strong man, or otherwise society falls apart. Right. If they can start... Uh, even have any glimpse of that and then kind of give that um, to the people or just to the international community as a whole, especially among developing nations, that's all they care about. Yeah. That increases their influence and and destabilizes any opposition. Yeah. And we were a lot like, this is like, it's clearly the cold war 2.0, right? This is the new cold war. It's, it's very similar in the sense that, China is trying to gobble up all these smaller nations and they're not really doing it how the U S and Russia did it, you know, almost a hundred years ago at this point, 80, 70, 80 years ago, they're doing it through technology and that reliance on like that, the, the new silk road project, one belt, Mm -hmm. one road where again, as I said before, they go out to these smaller, poor countries and say, listen, we'll build out this entire infrastructure for you. You don't got to pay us anything or we'll give you like this hundred year lease. You know, they make it real enticing. But then when the bill comes due, these countries can't say no. Like at that point, you're reliant on China, which is way more, way more insidious than anything the U.S. or the the Russians were doing or the Soviets were doing. Uh, It was that that was an ideological battle. And like just pure money, which if, if, if the U S and the Soviets are going after one country with money and promises that, that third country could play both of them. It's pretty easy to play both sides. Right. With this, China's like, no, we own all this telecom, all these roads we built for you. We we're going to shut it down. We, we built the port for you. We built this airport for you. Like that's ours now. And uh, that happened in Djibouti, I think, uh, and it's happening all over the world in other poorer countries, but that that's such a much more insidious way of, of going about things. And, and it's a, it's a real threat. And we, I don't, I don't know if we're going to react to it in time. Well, and I think that's some of the challenge, right? Cause I think, um, you know, when we think about international influence just throughout history, you know, go back to like even the 16th, 17th centuries, you, you think about empires that go and take over land and institute governors um, that ultimately support the, the mainland of the empire. Um, and really, China, throughout their history, has never been about that. They, they didn't play the imperial game and still don't seem to have much of an interest in, like you say, the Soviet-style way of enforcing communism of the world. They have, one, I think, a much more methodical approach. And, and you hit it on the head the intent is to create dependency. Yes. And the scary part is, like I say, we're seeing this become such a mainstay in European populations where we're dependent on their technology and we're not dependent necessarily, but from a pop culture standpoint, reliant on their their uh, entertainment, I guess. I mean, TikTok being a good example. Dude, TikTok not, is like My daughter, is my, I have a 13-year-old daughter, not a fan of me taking a hard stance. No, you will never <laughs> have to talk about anything ever for any reason. Like, yeah. And she doesn't care. Like, She has no interest in me explaining to her why it's bad. She just knows people have it and it makes funny videos. And I'm like, yeah, you, it it's, so. yeah, it's the most popular app and it's insane. Uh, I wasn't, I'm not a fan of the government, you know, forcing... Trump was going to try to force TikTok to sell to a U.S. company uh, in order to not get banned here, and it's that's such that's an interesting topic for another episode. But having the government be able to do that, but like I almost agree, like you kind of have to in that situation where TikTok is a known known threat and it's on every phone and like military members. I see military TikToks. Like I don't have TikTok, but I've definitely like any ones that get big. I can you can watch them on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I've seen you know military members have it. Uh, I'm sure plenty of other sensitive jobs in the government have TikTok because it's hard to avoid. That's I mean that's how easy it is, right? That's that's you just make a popular something popular that's Chinese owned, and then you have 
it's the yeah. same thing like when you tell somebody like oh this this say whatsapp or or uh signal or whatever whatever popular messaging app there is like say that was owned by the chinese like nobody would think twice about not using it like we don't use their they have a, they are their own twitter they have their own uh whatsapp facebook messenger type programs like nobody here would ever use that because it's like oh clearly china owns that and they have access to it but like tiktok nobody cares because you can make funny videos or you can make you know whatever videos about anything and it's like such an insidious thing and such an easy thing to to propagate yep. like we're i don't know man like it's one of those things where you gotta have people preach personal responsibility but it's like at that point when 10 percent of the u.s has tiktok on their phone and it's probably higher than that Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it becomes a problem. It becomes a se- legit national security issue. No, it, it does. And, and again, it, it's just interesting because, like, um, like if you go back, so China's just doing the opposite of really what the Federalist Papers argued with regards to needing a stronger central government and a strong military. Because basically, they were saying the, the argument in the early part of the uh, Federalist Papers was we need to be able to get access to markets across the world to sell our products if we're going to be as prosperous as we have the potential to be. And because of that, we need a strong military to protect our commerce. Right. And, and, and when we think about the rise of China, um, it can too, too quickly be dismissed as fear-mongering. And I think what we're both arguing is China, I don't think, is ever going to try to take over the world militarily and set up their own government the way empires have historically. They'll create dependency. Um They'll know how much they can just disrupt society. Um, and even if it's just dependency on you have access to the billions of people in our country through trade and your economy can't sustain losing that market overnight, they'll create dependency to get whatever they want. And in some cases, it's going to be greater than we'll give you access to our market. It's going to be you can't function without our technology and your people can't function um, if their government displeases us because we have access to a retirement accounts, we have access to bank accounts, we have access to anything we want because of applications and uh, telecom technology, such eight, as Huawei. Eight, 80, 80 million monthly active users in the U.S. On, on TikTok? On TikTok. That's just TikTok. As of, the population? as of February. It's crazy. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. And to go along with that, another interesting thing that we kind of mentioned earlier, as far as cultural influence, like since China opened up their borders, more or less to foreign media, the amount of like Hollywood movies, video games, everything targeting the Chinese audience or being created in a way to be accepted. China has extreme censorship. They have you can't do like paranormal stuff. They they got some weird stuff like witchcraft. Uh, they're not really big on religious angles in movies. Mm-hmm. Any any religion, mm-hmm. uh, and some some other weird stuff. So you you at first you were seeing like let's make a, a movie for the American audience and then we'll, we'll we'll edit it and then ship it over to China. Now we're seeing Chinese money being funneled into Hollywood to make movies specifically for China. Uh, the Fast and the Furious movies are a big one. Uh, Fast 9 actually premiered in China because that's one of their biggest markets. Hmm. Uh, famously, John Cena, who's in that movie, called Taiwan a country and then apologized in Mandarin to the Chinese people for calling Taiwan a country, which just goes to show you how absurd that the Chinese dollar is. Uh, the NBA had a thing where one of their general managers tweeted in support of Hong Kong during their... Uh, protests and he was getting into a lot of trouble and that showed up showed a lot of it opened up a lot of people's eyes to lebron james and all the other nba owners and players who rely on chinese money and chinese uh the chinese market uh for admonishing this gm uh, daryl morey for for basically just saying like all people are equal like you shouldn't you shouldn't uh you shouldn't enslave yeah. anybody like if they don't want to, you know, they, this is a, this is a, like a Martin Luther King Gandhi. Like this is what they would do. Like he didn't say anything like F China. He just said free Hong Kong. Don't, don't enslave well, Hong Kong basically. 
and, and I think the specifics and the specifics of, of the situation at the time was China was trying to say that um, Hong Kong citizens that are on trial were going to be extradited to mainland China to be tried. Right. Which um, violates you know, their autonomy. Listening, what's up? I said, which violates their autonomy. They have they, yeah, they they're they're fairly autonomous for mainland China. Yeah, which which is basically you know, like when LeBron James commented, it, it frustrated me a little bit. Not so much. It frustrated me a little bit because what China is trying to do to Hong Kong would basically be saying, "Hey, all African Americans, you're going to get a fair trial, but we're going to extradite you to fill in the state that would worry you the most." Right, and right. that's where your trial is going to be had. Like, if that was to be the case for him, he would certainly be like, that's not fair. This is racist. And rightfully so. But I think there's just uh, China does an amazing job of opening their market, but also seemingly hiding a multitude of transgressions, such as extraditing Hong Kong citizens to mainland China for trial, such as the treatment of the Muslims in their country. Like, yes, there's a lot of things the that they seem to be able to hide. And I don't understand how. Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, they have basically entire control over their internet and media there, and they have wide apathy among their citizens of as long as we're – China was one of the poorest countries, even how big they were, forever because of – like Mao ruined everything and the famines. They killed a lot of their intelligentsia off, and then the famines happened, and they couldn't rebound from that. And for a long time, they were a poor, starving country. Uh, they decided to start opening their markets and the little bit of capitalism that creaked through created a whole bunch of billionaires and millionaires. And there's a whole new middle class of Chinese citizens who have money and are able to travel over the last 20 years. We've seen Chinese tourism skyrocket throughout all countries. And with that came like, well, now they're apathetic to all the problems of the country. Like famously there was uh, Tiananmen square, which, you know, a month or about a month and a half ago was the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. That was kind of like the start of them, the uprising and mm-hmm. kind of made, not only was that the turning point for the current government to kind of crack down on everybody and everything and make sure nobody knew about those kind of massacres ever again. Uh, but also into the, okay, we do need to lift these people out of poverty before we lose control of this thing. Uh, you know, French, French revolution style. Yeah. One well, again, I you know, t- for my comment, it wasn't so much how are you hiding it from Chinese citizens. Like you said, I think they know and they just don't care because what they have now is better than what their parents and grandparents had before. Exactly. Exactly. But for the rest of the world, to seemingly not care, um, and yet at the same time, look at the Holocaust and be like, "Hey, never again." Like that's right. what surprises me. And again, it's not just it's not just me. Like pop culture icons that are turning a blind eye to it. It, it seems to be also politicians across the quote unquote free world that aren't doing the things necessary to potentially force their hand into more human rights um, policy that that's actually just. And yeah. that's why I'm saying like we have so many people that know, but seemingly don't respond or act in a way that says, hey, here's how we can either, you know, isolate them until we bring them to the table and say, you can't do this anymore. Yeah, I think we're pretty, I think we're pretty, it's pretty well evidence that they're running re-education camps and treating these people poorly. I don't know if they're exterminating them yet. Uh, But yeah, we we definitely know that they're not treating them well. I, I mean... There definitely should be more embargoes, more more block boycotts. It's not something where we're going to invade and mm-hmm. you know start a war over, which is unfortunate to say. Uh, it's hard. I mean, not unfortunate to say. I don't want a war. War with China is is not a good idea. But again, ha- I, like you brought up, like touting the Holocaust and everything, like World War Two, uh, the U.S.'s role in World War Two and ending that and and all that. It's hard to like learn about that and learn about how quote unquote great America was in World War II and then like come to terms with like, okay, we know we know something similar is going on right now in this day and age, and we're really not doing anything about it. Yeah. Well, but so you mentioned a couple of times, um, you know, that, that China is kind of more capitalistic now. And there's a guy named Eric Lee, he's a Chinese citizen, but he's educated in the US. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Um, 
but he speaks a lot to this and he's, he's very pro-China, obviously, as a Chinese citizen. Um, but he says China is not a capitalist country. It's a market-based economy. And the distinction he makes there is important because he would say in a capitalist country, capital reigns supreme. In a market economy, you know, the market reigns supreme. And what he would say, and I think he's right in some of this, is, you know, for instance, he would look at critically at America and say, the democratic process doesn't govern the country. The capitalist institutions and your, your, you know, commerce giants have much more sway over the policy of the country than the people do. Um, and I, the reason I bring that up, because everything you're saying um, and how at least America responds to it very much supports his critical assessment of the United States and our economic policies, where right. our capital can be uh, meet its greatest return. That's where we'll pursue it. And it seems to me that as long as corporations can save face, they will do business over there because their values are not anything other than monetary gain in many instances. Yeah. I think, I think when we talk about China, we're t- we've, we expose the, I don't know if it's the greatest flaw of capitalism, but one of its biggest flaws is absolutely, I think you're what you, you said it exactly. The capital is going to chase the capital there. There's, there's a, it's never ending expansion. It's never ending looking for the next dollar. And that, that doesn't have a political sway to it. That doesn't have a moral sway to it or an ethical sway. Definitely doesn't have an ethical sway to it. They want more money. It's a never ending. You need infinite growth. You need to grow the stock price. The shareholders need to be paid. And we're, we are absolutely seeing the biggest flaw in that with China when a U.S. So I'm very familiar with, you know, gaming industry. I have a gaming podcast, 1v1 Gaming. If you don't know, go check it out. A U.S. company can't sell a video game in China unless they have a Chinese company sponsor them. And that Chinese company gets a piece of the pie. A Chinese company can sell a view, a Chinese video game in the U.S. No U.S. company has to sponsor them. They, you know, they have to register, they have to pay whatever tax to the U.S. government for whatever importation or whatever. But they don't, they don't, they don't get overseen by a U.S. company. There's none of that. We are a open market for the most part, and over there, it's not. That's not reciprocal, and that it just blows my mind that we let that happen. Yeah, well, and, you know, when President Clinton uh, really pushed for and advocated for China joining the WTO back in the 90s, kind of what was promised by all sides was both markets will be equally open. And what, what you just said that's happening wouldn't happen. But instead, we, you know, pretty much allowed free trade for our market. And then to get access to theirs, it's, hey, these are the stipulations that are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um and again, because we're making so much money, we, we don't seem we seem to have a higher tolerance for both small businesses that are trying to start and large businesses getting the intellectual property ripped off. Um, and to me, that's where like, gosh, it's so hard now, um, especially in our in our country, where you need the vote of the people um, to, to win election and re-election. But because we've tasted the immediate prosperity of it, it's just going to be really hard um to reverse course and really start to shift the amount of influence and sway they have um in the world and again i mean we talked about it already but somebody's going to have to say this is the main priority of my administration i want to get congress behind it and i'm going to i'm going to speak well to it and i'm going to rally the national community because that was secretary pompeo's big thing is while it may be cold war 2.0 Russia was never a part of the international community. Right. And it was very much um, the merits of uh, Marxist communism on the economy versus the merits of free market capitalism on the economy and who's going to win. China's plugged in everywhere. So you right. can't it, it's a you completely can't embargo different. them like we did like Cuba, for instance, when they joined right. the Soviet Union. And that's why it's so disheartening seeing these octogenarians running the country when it's like this isn't cold this isn't the same cold war this isn't your your granddaddy's cold war this is a new cold war it's different tactics it's different everything and exactly like you said like we starved we starved the soviet union to death they they had they had no recourse but to do that we're not going to starve china we're not going to squeeze china out the same way Mm -mm. 
Yeah, so, no, it, it, yeah, it's a totally different situation, and, and it just I think it requires one a long view because China, with their one party um, system, has a lot more leverage in having a long view. Um, you know, and that's just the reality of it because our president and Congress, you know, men and women um, have elections every two to six years. Yeah, but we have to have a, a, a focused policy on here are the steps we're going to take to 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 right the ship, and we're bringing on international community members um, and partner with developing nations to make sure that the next fifty years um, would go the way we'd like them to go, as opposed to China having a greater influence um, again. I think they can, and this is where I think America has to understand, they can do this without having a dominant military. Yeah. I think their plan doesn't necessarily call for a dominant military, even though they're building islands in the Pacific, and even though they're building up their military. I think they're building up military just enough to have a deterrent to where their economic policy and their international trade policy is going to be what gives them the sway over the world that they want. So we've discussed how big of an an issue they are. And I, I think we're really close to a tipping point where I don't, nothing we do can stop them. Uh, but what are some, what are some of your ideas of what specifically what we can do that would uh, help slow them down? Yeah. So I think, I think, and you will disagree on some of these for sure. Um, I think one thing we have to have a different tax policy for corporations to bring, um, to make it advantageous and reasonable for corporations to do business in America as, a port, as opposed to exporting everything overseas. I think what President Trump, would, oh, sorry, what President Obama was trying to do, um, very similar to what President Kennedy was trying to do, um, which is partner with developing nations and be the one that kind of helps usher them into the 21st century um, and help lift some of their people out of poverty, but do it through trade. Don't necessarily do it through putting military bases there or, or um, really just handing out money. Um, you do it through trade and you do it through um, dip diplomatic policies. Um, and then I think you do rally existing allies say, let's be honest, we all know what the, the, the issue is here. And it's going to be easier for your constituents to continue to vote you in the office if there are 25 nations all doing the same thing and marching to the beat of the same drum. But if you go into this divided, um, it's going to be easy to pick apart. And it's going to be easy for um, China to influence public opinion enough to where no meaningful change can be made. So those are the handful of things I would do, at least to start with. Yeah, I think being specific and this, I, I haven't like thought the, like written these out and discovered the, or like thought about the consequences too much other than like just off the top of my head. But very similar to how like we thought opening China up would be we would impart our culture on them kind of backfired. Uh, I think like severely limiting Chinese foreign exchange students. A lot of them are coming here and get reaping the benefits of a U.S. education. Uh, and I believe this is kind of a kind of a touchy subject. I don't want to be wrong, but I believe Chinese students are more likely to cheat on average than any other foreign exchange student. Uh, but because foreign, a lot of these public schools, public universities rely on, they charge foreign students ungodly amounts of tuition as opposed to, you know, a local, a local in-state student or even a U.S. student. Uh, they make a lot of money off foreign students. So I think that's going to be hard to wean them off of that. But I think limiting them, uh, having having the like rejecting this policy of having a Chinese company have to sponsor a U.S. company, I I would assume a lot of the the IP stealing situation that we were talking about, I mean, probably has something to do with these these companies having to partner with these Chinese companies. I think that just not we you have to, I don't know what you do I think you have to prevent that from happening or I don't know if you can ban U.S. companies from partaking in that practice or what but that's that's something banning that banning 
not banning, but limiting Chinese foreign exchange students and maybe like more targeted tariffs. I, I didn't really like the way the tariffs were kind of just rolled out stuff that we don't want to start this tit for tat. But we really need to start weaning us manufacturing off of the Chinese tea, more stuff built here, more stuff sourced from smaller allied nations. So we can build those, build those relationships And yeah, I mean, just keeping our current allies on board is a huge part of it. We can't lose Germany and France to Huawei. That's just not not a winning strategy for the U.S. But I don't know if we can pull it off, man. I think what what you said about, um, what was his name, Mike Lee? Eric Lee. Eric Lee, excuse me. Eric Lee, about how we're, we are, you know, dominated, ruled by capital i i don't know if those mega corporations are going to allow severe actions against the chinese market that's going to affect their bottom line yeah well and i think the only way and again this is there's a big question mark in the future but something that could help that is, is if republicans and democrats in office um really from the state level up would all say, listen, we all, again, we need to march with the United theme here because we all recognize the the problem. We all know at least generally what to do to stop it. So if both parties were saying, hey, this has to stop, this is a problem, you know, th- th- then there's, again, there's, there's freedom to speak candidly about it and to put policies in place that need to be done. Um, but when, you know, a politician from either party says, Hey, this is a problem. Um, what's, what seems to be better on election day is for the opposition to say, no, you're fear mongering. No, you're just, right. you know, uh, being too, too cautious. Uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, misconstruing the facts. And, and again, what do you do there? Um, but it's going to take somebody being honest with people and hopefully both parties being honest with people. I mean, like they were in a lot of ways, uh, at least during the cold war, which is, Hey, this is an evil. There, there are problems here. Um, not that it was rosy, not that there was disagreements, uh, wasn't disagreements back then, but right. Speaking candidly to the reality of how China wants to influence the world, because it's much more subtle than invading Afghanistan and taking over yeah. um, militarily. Well, again, I think we were we weren't getting any benefit from the Soviet Union, so it's a lot easier to paint them as the bad guy, whereas we're getting tons of benefit from China. And like, I, but I think you're right. I think speaking candidly, like, here's what the benefits we're getting. We need to we we need to sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. Americans sacrificed during you know World War Two, World War One. We rationed. We did all this stuff. We sacrificed our young men to go and fight these wars. There's, there's gotta be, a, if we're going to beat China in this new cold war where there's going to be sacrifice. So like, we just, you have to be real and be like, here's everything we're benefiting on. The only way we're going to turn this tide is by cutting down on Chinese manufacturing, cutting down on, on, uh, exporting things to China, uh, and importing things to China. Uh, you know, making media, specifically for taking Chinese capital to make movies. Like you just got to cut down on that stuff. You got it. You got to do it. It's just how it is. If these companies want to move and go headquarter in China, see ya. Bye. Like go for it. Go check, go chase that Chinese dollar, but you're going to do it over there. You're not going to do it here. And then you lose access to, to arm. I mean, what you'd have to do at that point is say, then you lose access to our market. Like that's a business you have to make. And if you're, if you're not just our market, but if you have, you know, even this, the, the two dozen so countries of NATO, um, if you have all of them saying, oh, you lose access to our market as well. As well, like, right. It's, it's just not, it's just not in their, again, capital interest to say, okay, we're going to move over to China, you know, but, but I think some of it is for good reason. There's, there's distrust in the government and there's distrust in anything they say, especially when it calls for individuals making sacrifices. Um, you know, and that's why I think there has to be, there has to be at the state level and above Republicans and Democrats 
saying, you know, in the same tone with, with the same set of facts, this is a problem. Here's how, as a, as a nation, we're going to combat it. And here's how we're going to try to stem the stem some of these sacrifices we have to make um, and kind of present some sort of, again, general plan to say, here's what we think would work and then debate the nuances of that plan. So for instance, again, I mentioned one of the nuances that would definitely be debated is the corporate tax rate. Um, and that's a fair and honest debate, but if we're having it within the framework of specifically, this is all to combat China, you know, the, the, we're debating the same thing on the same premise instead of any number of other, other principled issues you can debate that topic on. So you might have a better perspective on this than I, I would. What would the hardcore conservative libertarian say about the government closing off the market to a country like China? Because generally speaking, they're for free and open trade. Generally, and, speaking, and less uh, and less government regulation. Like for the longest time, no Republican was going to put up a tariff, right? Like tariffs mm-hmm. were not a Republican ideal. Trump mm-hmm. did, uh, and I think it was good, but that's generally not a a, a conservative tactic. Yeah. Uh, what's the pushback from like those those guys going to be? Yeah. So so I think I think. Uh... There's two questions. How do you get the conservatives on board and, and how do you argue it for them? Make President Trump get on board. It seems <laughs> like the quote unquote, the traditional conservative at least is going to follow the beat of his drum. You know, I think for the libertarian, I think in principle, yeah, we're absolutely. Um, and I shouldn't say we because there's a lot of libertarian. Dis- like, yeah, um, yeah. I don't want to generalize but, too much, but I, I just think yeah, like, yeah, in general. Point, I think you say, yeah, your principles are for free and uh, accountable trade or free and just trade, but that's not what we have. Right. So if you're advocating for a status quo because you're a free trader, well, you can't be both in this situation because you don't have free trade with China. And if you're not going to get free trade, then there can't be a trade agreement. So this is how we move forward. Um, because yeah, I would love for there to be free trade with China. Um, but, but it's, it's, I think it's just falling asleep at the wheel to say this is what we have now or it's close to it. Yeah, for sure. I uh, I think we've definitely let the uh the corporate capitalist dollar kind of shareholder <laughs> value kind of guide our decisions uh with regards to China specifically for for too long. But it's been an it's an interesting topic. I, I I'm pretty pessimistic about it. I really don't see it. There's going to have to be some kind of major international conflict with China before we actually get serious about it. Unfortunately. Yeah. And I think by that point, I mean, if, if we're to the point of military conflict, um, and if we stay on the trajectory we're on now, it may be too late. Yeah. Um, and, and really what I hope happens, and this was this 18 months ago, this was a big deal. Now it's not. I mean, we saw what happened when our supply chain is controlled by China with, with yeah. response to COVID. I mean, there are several um, PPE, personal protective equipment um, that, that we needed that China controlled the supply chain of and we couldn't get. That there was that was one reason we had shortages. Um, yeah. And that should have been, I mean, that was an ideal time to say, hey, this is an example of, of why we need to have a clear and direct stance on combating China's economic influence over the world because it directly ties to our influence, um, not beyond economics. And in this case, it was health. So, Yeah, and I guess I'm mostly just being selfish because I went to DLI for Korean and not Mandarin, and I really don't want to have to learn a new language. So I really don't want them to take over the world. That'd be a lot of work to have to learn a whole new language. Uh, I, it was the first time. Trust me, I don't want to do it again. But that seems like a good place to end it. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think there's definitely we'll probably have to re- retread this topic again in like a year and see where we're at, uh, see how much worse it's gotten. But yeah, again, great conversation. Uh, follow us on Twitter at the rake, but the A's of four at Thomas Black underscore 86. We're the one v one deep state podcast. I did create our own Twitter account for the show. Finally. Uh, it is at OVO Deep State on Twitter. So follow that. I'll be 
we'll be posting from that more often, especially the episodes and stuff. Uh, join our Discord. I'll have that as a pinned message on the episode and on the Twitter account. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>